Genesis 22:18. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Revelation 5 and verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God and for, from every tribe and language and people and nation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Good to be with you all this morning. Appreciate all the um, participation in the services. John's doing a great job with family Bible education, even if he is competing with another mic. <laughs> At times. I asked Cherie, what did you hear? <laughs> and she said, really, I couldn't hear anything except mumble jumble. And so I'll let you in. I'll let you in on it. Me and Gary had a conversation. He asked me, um, is Cherie still trying to get you to shorten your sermons? And I said, she's given up. So that's it. Hopefully you won't be able to tell uh, from this sermon. But well, we have some important things to talk about, and I do really appreciate you being here today. Um, I wanted to start off with a couple of seemingly unre unrelated instances from history, just by way of illustration. In the nation of uh, uh, Rwanda in Africa in the 1990s, genocidal conflict erupted between two groups of people that had been in tension for some time, the Hutu and the Tutsi tribes, between half a million and one million people, estima estimations vary, were slaughtered. Tens of thousands raped. Many people killed inside church buildings that were burned to the ground with people inside. And one of the ironic things about all of that is that 90% of the population, which included both tribes involved, were Christians. Go back a few decades earlier, the 1960s, leading the civil rights movement against Jim Crow laws, racial segregation, Martin Luther King Jr. was reported to have said on one occasion that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning was the most segregated hour in America. What happens at 11 a.m. on sun Sunday mornings? Church. And whether he said that or if it's just a po an apocryphal quote, there's no question when you study religious history, as I have, uh, you know, as a kind of hobby, second, semi-career, one of the major opponents to integration and to uh, uh, affording full civil rights and humanity to everyone um, were people in a lot of churches. It's just a fact. Now, some of the leaders of the civil rights movement were also religious leaders, so it kind of goes both ways, do many things in history. But those two seemingly unrelated events have a lot in common. In both cases, people who were ostensibly followers of Jesus Christ, adherents to the Word of God, saw no relevance, or very little practical relevance, between the gospel, on one hand, and problems like racism and intertribal violence, on the other. Relationships between people groups, many have assumed, is not a spiritual problem. It's a social problem or a political problem. 
as if love your neighbor as yourself isn't social by definition. God doesn't just say love me. He says love your neighbor. And so now social relationships and things like political questions, which involve social relationships, are on the table. He didn't just give us something to do inside a church building and to so overly spiritualize things that they are of no earthly good. God's interested in the mundane because mundane comes from world, and he made it, right? And that's what I want to talk about today. I, I, you know, it's, it's like people were, were able to forget passages like, and there are many of these, the scriptures are replete with such statements that in heaven, in, in the new heavens and new earth, when God finally restores all the world and handles the problem of sin, we, it will be peopled, it will be populated by every tribe and language and people and nation. Where were passages like that when the slaughter was being committed, when the segregation was just acknowledged as part of the normal fact of life? My thesis in the next couple of lessons will be that this idea that the gospel and relations between people groups are unrelated is a false and unfaithful idea. It's unfaithful to the Word of God. And I hope that's clear. That's my thesis. However clearly I make the points, that's, that's the argument I'll be making. Even though intergroup division, conflict throughout the world and throughout world history is, of course, as old as this ancient cave art, which I think comes from the Lascaux uh, cave art, about 15,000, 20,000 years old in southwest France. You can see the tribes fighting. <laughs> That's what we do. We're humans. The gospel calls us to rise above that, to transcend that, to see a different path through all of that because of Jesus Christ and what he did at Calvary, what he did with the empty tomb, and he, what he gave us in this ministry of reconciliation, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.18. And so today we're going to be talking, and, and next week as well, uh, Lord willing, about reconciliation, but between people groups. I want to, first of all, uh, just do some sort of housekeeping about terms so that we're all clear here. Notice I'm using the term chauvinism. Group chauvinism and the gospel of Christ. What does that word chauvinism mean, and why am I using it? Um, the word chauvinism, if I were to ask just word association, I, I think a good many of you, if you're, I don't know, 50 or older, would probably say male chauvinism. It would have something to do with gender, sexuality, those kinds of debates and conversations. Probably dating from the 70s, I'm guessing, late 60s, 70s, 80s, male chauvinism. The word was almost just co-opted and monopolized by that conversation. Sometimes in animal rights conversations, you'll hear species, species chauvinism. Like the world's only for humans, we can do whatever we want to animals, doesn't even matter, they're just fodder, that kind of thing. I'm not using it in any of those two specific ways, but in its older, truer more fundamental meaning. I just looked up a definition online real quick, and this is the basic idea of chauvinism, and I'll tell you why I'm using it in a minute. I want to make sure every time I use it that you know what we're talking about, all right? It is, according to one definition, I don't remember which dictionary this is, the unreasonable belief in the superiority or dominance of one's own group or people. That's the basic idea. My kind, my type, my folks, my tribe, my race, my ethnicity, my nation, 
my fellow you know, linguistic fellows, my political uh, fellow partisans, whatever it is, we are better than the rest of them. They are suspect, they are weak, unworthy, inferior. We are superior, strong, and virtuous. It is a kind of groupthink which says one's own group, it's going to outgroup in-group thinking. People in my group are the right group. All right, that's chauvinism. That's what we're going to use as, as our term. I was going to use a term like, I was going to use tribalism. In fact, I reworked my entire thing and then did a little more research. That word has too many connotations, even though it's widely used today um, on the news and things like that. Uh, it, it has sort of derogatory vestiges from its colonial usage. And I, don't want, I don't want to be derogatory to anybody. In fact, that's the whole point of this lesson is to uh, have us think and, 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 and believe and uh, behave uh, in, in a higher fashion, a more noble fashion, a more cruciform fashion. But I, I, did, I needed a single word. Like, I don't want to every time in this sermon and next week have to say racism, ethnocentrism, nationalism, cultural imperialism, political sectarianism. You know, I don't want to do that every time. You don't want me to either. The sermon will be longer than it needs to be. So I'm going to say chauvinism most of the time. And, and, and it's going to capture any in-group, out-group, us versus them kind of thinking. What does the gospel say about that? Today's lesson, I want to talk about the problem of us assuming in many cases, or at least many Christians assuming, that it has nothing to do with it. That, that's a, that has nothing to do with the gospel. I believe that's patently false. And I want, to, I want to try to show you that today. And then next week we'll talk about what do we do about solving that. What, what, what are we called to do as ministers of reconciliation in a world that is divided chauvinistically into all these people groups? All right. So basically today, I want to suggest to you at first that, that group chauvinism, I'll call it, contradicts the very character of our God. Is it God-like? Is it godly? Are we emulating and imitating our maker when we subscribe to, participate, um, look the other way, when this kind of chauvinism characterizes our world, when, when leaders, when politicians and others are appealing to that, to attract us, to build followings? It's very possible for those who claim allegiance to God to think and speak and behave in ways that are at odds, actually, with God's very character. Let's go back to Leviticus 19. The passage where we first read the second great command, love your neighbor as yourself. This is, this is where that came from. Jesus got that from here, right? Well, Jesus was behind even this, so it's Jesus' idea, but, but you know what I mean. First comes from Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Leviticus 19, 2, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You're not going to be like everybody else. You're going to be other. You're going to rise above that. You're going to live by a different set of principles and statutes and truths. And guess what? They are my principles and statutes and truths and character. I want you to be like me. I am holy. You're my people, therefore you be holy. That's basically what Leviticus 19 is about. And then uh, he begins to, the chapter begins to apply that to different situations. What does it mean to be holy? Well, one of the things it means is that you are to love your neighbor as yourself, um, which he says down in verse 18, and he says it actually a couple other times. 
And one of the applications has to do with what do you do when another people group comes into your land? He calls them here sojourners and strangers. How do you respond to that? How would the Lord's character have you, Israel, respond to, your version may say immigrants. That's what the word means. That's what, that's what the context is here. Foreigners, immigrants, come into your land. He says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. Treat him just like you would each other. You shall love him as yourself. There's neighbor love applied, right? It's, it's wonderful to talk about it as some theoretical abstraction. He's going to apply it and say, on the ground, what's it look like? It means that person who looks different from you, who has a different history and culture, maybe a language, whatever it is, you're going you're gonna to love him like your own neighbor. And you're going to remember this. You were strangers yourself in the land of Egypt. And then the real appeal is to the character of God. Notice it. I am the Lord your God. That's how each of these ends. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. You're going to be holy like me. And I appreciate, personally, that immigration policy is a complex issue. And I can see how good people, Christian people, might honorably differ and make arguments both ways. It's not simple. Let's don't act like it is. American history is... <laughs> A patchwork. If you have an idea that, that we have one immigration policy that's always been there and we somehow deviate, it is all over the map. When I teach modern American history, we do a little unit on the new industrial order and urbanization, late, late 1800s, early 1900s, Ellis Island and all of that. We just kind of recap American immigration policy. There was no policy for a long time. None. There were things like, you go out there and I'll give you a homestead in land that somebody else already owns. That was the policy. And it was willy-nilly. People just show up in Philadelphia or Wilmington or New York City and just fan out beyond the Appalachians and go where they wanted. They started getting some policy in the late 19th century and early 20th century, and the policies are not real pretty from a Christian standpoint. Um, thank you for doing all this labor. We're now going to exclude you. Things like that. Unless you're from Northwest Europe. Very racist, very ethnocentric. I'm, I'm kind of putting all this together. I'm not trying to make a policy, political statement here about immigration. It, it is complicated. It always has been about how to handle borders. I do find it interesting, and this is my point, that according to public, uh, the Public Religion Research Institute, white evangelicals, who responded to this among other religious groups, are the only religious group in the United States to hold a majority belief that immigrants are, quote, a threat to our society and way of life. 53% of white evangelicals. Every other group, it's not a majority. But one of the groups who is most likely probably to trumpet the Bible as the basis for what they do is the most likely to see immigrants as a threat to our way of life and society. Never mind the fact. Just table the fact that every one of them is a descendant of an immigrant. Every one of them. So that's a little bit hypocritical in the first place. But isn't that odd when you've got statements like this in the paradigmatic chapter on neighbor love saying, let me apply it for you, it applies to immigrants. The fact that a lot of people don't even know that's in the Bible is, is problematic. And it speaks to how we often see the gospel and the relationship between people groups as not connected. 
And I'm just trying to make the point that that's a, that's a pretty curious place to be if you're saying you're going to be people of the Bible. The fact is Christians have often been blinded to significant parts of Scripture by their chauvinism. Uh, racism would be one example of this. There was a, a minister in 17th century Cambridge, Massachusetts named Thomas Shepard. He was a Puritan. The Puritans were famous for their commitment to the book. Right? They're going to come here and, you know, William Bradford, the first governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, does this famous speech aboard the Arbella, the ship that's bringing him over. And there, he says, we're going to be a city on a hill, quoting Jesus. Our laws are going to be the laws of the Bible. And we're going to be a, a, a shining beacon to, you know, decrepit and, and uh, backsliding Europe for what it means to be a Christian civilization. That's the Puritans. Well, Thomas Shepard was one of their ministers. And after the Pequot War, when thousands of people are wiped out, he referred to the massacre of these native people as, quote, divine slaughter. They were the heathen. And so the new Israelites, you know, these English settlers in, in what became known as Massachusetts Bay Colony are, are sort of authorized to wipe them out. What happened to love your neighbor as yourself? What happened to... Um, you know, love your enemy if they're regarded as your enemy. Think about all the institutionalized racism in American history from slavery, which was a legal institution. It's in the Constitution, things like the three-fifths clause. It's built in, it's baked into the nation. Historians have called uh, slavery our original sin. We, we have the Declaration of Independence, which is this beautiful document on the one hand, and we have the three-fifths clause. There's sort of like contradiction right out of the gate in the founding documents. Thomas Jefferson pens the Declaration of Independence. Everybody, everywhere, regardless of anything, is equal before God. Certain unalienable rights as humans. And he's got slaves in the backyard. That's institutionalized. What about Jim Crow laws? Even after Appomattox, 100 years of laws systematically disenfranchising one race. And you know who often defended both of those things? Christians. I want you to contrast all that with God's character. And if this stings right now, let it sting. That's my two cents. Let it sting. It needs to sting. Peter comes to the realization about God's acceptance of the Gentiles after seeing that great vision. Remember Acts 10, Acts 11? There's this vision. Peter's hungry. He sees this vision of a sheet being let down by its four corners from heaven to earth, and it's full, just teeming with all of these unclean, from the Jewish kosher laws in the Old Testament, unclean beasts, unclean animals. And the voice from heaven, God's voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter objects and God says, what I have made clean, don't you, a mere human being, now make uncommon. And Peter draws this conclusion as he presents this to other early Christians. He opened his mouth and said in Acts 10, 34, truly, I understand, he says now, that God shows no partiality. Your version may say God is no respecter of person or God does not play favorites. I looked it up. There's a lot of different ways to put this. Basically, God's not prejudiced, to use our parlance. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
There is a group, there's an in-group, but it, the in-group are people who are trying to follow God and accept His gifts of grace and mercy and to try to obey His ways. That's the in-group. And the in-group's inviting everybody in the out-group in, no matter what they look like or what language they speak or where they come from or what their history or culture is. God does not play favorites. He is not partial and prejudiced. Now somebody might say, well, wait a minute. Didn't God give the scriptures to Israel? That's one nation. Didn't he select them to be his people? Wasn't he showing partiality or favoritism to this particular tribe or incipient nation? Let me suggest to you the answer to that is actually no. And, and it's no because we have to consider why God chose Israel. He chose Israel because they were going to play a part in his overarching plan. We see as we read through Scripture that he was choosing this particular nation on behalf of a universal plan. One nation chosen, but chosen on behalf of all the nations. And that's his plan. And that's the second problem with this kind of groupthink chauvinism is that it contradicts the very plan of God as revealed throughout the redemptive scheme of the Bible. So if you read the Bible like narratively, you know, not burrowing down on all the little tiny pieces of it, like going into the trees, but staying up at the forest level, right? And you just look at the plot line of the Bible from creation to new creation, from the heavens and the earth to the new heavens and new earth of Revelation 21 and 22, and everything in between, pivot point being the cross, the resurrection. Like our, our, our timeline, we'd have the story you know, of the Bible. When you're doing that, you begin to see that bringing in all sorts of people, redeeming all sorts of people, was never not God's idea. And so this chauvinism is something that opposes the very plan that, that, that we read about in Scripture. Israel was chosen, after all, to mediate God's blessings to the whole world, to all people groups. And that universal redemption was always God's intention. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 1 through 11, the world has turned into a hot mess, right? Sin, fall, revenge, violence. God's already done a flood, but before and after the flood to wipe out uh, the, the world's evil, its violence. We read before and after, sandwiching the event of the flood, that, that humanity's heart was only always evil continually. It doesn't change that, unfortunately. And sin comes post-flood, even though it was to cleanse the world and kind of decreate and recreate in a sense, just like it did pre-flood. And then in Genesis 12, after the Tower of Babel participants were trying to make a name for themselves and build their own tower from earth to heaven, we read that God said to Abraham, I'm going to make a name for you. In Genesis 12, in the famous promise to Abraham, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Leave Mesopotamia, come to what would become Canaan, Palestine. I will make of you a great nation that will be the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This doesn't mean like modern western nuclear families like oh that means me and my 2.2 children and my cocker spaniel. That's not the idea here. It's the Hebrew word mishpaha which means tribes. It's like kindreds, clans. So big family, you know, hundreds of people. Think like a Native American tribe, you know, or something like that. And then this is reiterated several times in Genesis. 
When we come to Genesis 22, we find God saying this to Abraham. In your offspring, somebody, some descendant of yours, through that descendant, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And that's the word goy, Hebrew word for Gentiles or just foreign nations. Everybody but you, Israel. You see what I'm saying? When he's calling the patriarch from whose lineage Israel flows, he's saying, I am doing this ultimately so that all the nations, all the clans, all the people groups can be blessed. That was never not the theme of the Bible. All right? So how, how does thinking chauvinistically about your group, us versus them, how does it square with that? Think about that the next time you pop on the news. Right? Next time somebody wants you to be red versus blue. Next time they try to get your vote and appeal to whatever fear or anxiety you have that demonizes these other people over here and reduces them to just a set of positions that's different from your groups. There's a thousand ways this manifests. That may be one of the more relevant ones for right now. But think about that. This, ma this matters. The story matters. And that's God's plan. Israel was to be, as we memorized in a recent Family Bible Education Month, a light to the nations. I will make you as a light for the nations, or the Gentiles, your version may say, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And many Israelites abdicated this responsibility, to be sure. You think, one thinks of Jonah, who is told, hey, I care about the people in Assyria, those pagans. Go to Nineveh and preach. And he goes the opposite way, remember? At first, and never really seems to be preaching with bells on. <laughs> He's there under duress when he is. But God's still watching those people all over the world and loving them and caring about them and planning to try to redeem them. Isaiah 56 captures this really well. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Notice this. And the foreigners, verse 6, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these, these, these people from elsewhere, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, and their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my offer, altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for whom? All peoples. All people. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, verse 8, declares, I will gather yet others to him because, or besides those um, already gathered. Jesus appears in the biblical narrative and is basically the ultimate, the consummate Israelite. The one Jew who does what all of them were supposed to do, but none did perfectly. And that is to live out God's law. And God, through Christ, brings his plan to, to fruition, to maturation, to a climax. Paul connects Jesus to that promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12. In Galatians 3, Paul writes this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you're Christ, if you're a Christian, if you've been baptized into Christ, you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. See, he, he doesn't, Paul doesn't see this as some new thing that has no connection with the story. This is actually what 
Genesis 12 was talking about. When you become a Christian, that offspring of Abraham has now blessed you with life instead of death, with freedom instead of uh, spiritual slavery, and so on. But notice this as well. In verse 28 of the same text, one of the implications Paul wants them to see when they are baptized believers, when they are Christ followers, and heirs to that promise to Abraham, he wants them to see and to live out, to think differently about people groups. What was the purpose? Did God tell Abraham, your seed, your offspring, your descendant is going to bless all the nations of the earth? And that's why Paul says in verse 28, we just read over this sometimes like this is not part of it. Like this is a proof text for baptism. I think it is in many ways, but it's also a proof text to not think in racist or ethnocentric or nationalist terms. You okay, Mr. Arn? Yeah. All right. You need help, somebody can... Somebody have a bottle of water for Miss Joanne? <clears throat> All right, so neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male or female. I wonder how many of us, when we're baptized into Christ, we come out of the water, think, all right, now I'm in a different people group. One that includes all kinds of people from other groups, but transcends that as well. A lot of times we're just totally individualistic in our thinking. That just means I'm, I'm not going to hell now. My sins have been, it, it means that. It means I'm, I'm, I'm saved. But it also means you're in a new community that looks different. It's constituted on different principles. It's not just visceral in-group, out-group thinking. What's familiar and comfortable and what's not scary and different. It's constituted by the blood of Christ. All right. So Paul wants us to live that out. Is that real for you? That's my question. And we'll talk more about that next week. But I, I believe we can't understand this term ministry of reconciliation, which grows out of us becoming new creatures in Christ as something separate from when you're baptized into Christ, you're not just Jew or Greek still. You're not just male or female or slave or free, whatever your social class would be in that day and time or, or this day and time. Everybody is being, is being reconciled back to Christ. So think about that. And we see this as the story culminates in the new heavens, new earth, right? In eternity. I want you to notice once again this passage from Revelation 5 9. When John sees the vision of the Lamb, he says, Worthy are you to take the scroll. He sees this vision of, of the resurrected Jesus to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe. Language, uh, tribe and language, tribe and tongue, people and nation. In Revelation 22, we read about all the nations coming to the throne of God in the new heavens, new earth, and the new Jerusalem. It never wasn't about all the nations. That's God's plan. So merely to accept the kind of chauvinistic otherizing alienizing that we, we, we typically do as humans or often do is to adhere to the logic of the, of the world. That's the logic of the old creation. And to adhere to that or tolerate it or lean into it even, Christians are doing in droves, droves now. I almost said droves. That's swaths and droves combined. But they are. I mean, just watch the news. 
The word, it's being, the word Christian in many ways is being redefined before our very eyes. It's some sort of ethnic or nationalist thing. Show me in the Bible where it means that, ever, one time even. I'm sorry if I sound agitated about this, but I think we're living in a time when uh, there's a mass co-option going on that we're going to live to regret. We're going to look back on it. It's not going to age well. Hopefully it ages poorly quickly because it is losing tons and tons of millennials and Gen Zers. That's what surveys say. Whether we like that or not, you can blame it on them if you want, but it's happening en masse. MLK said that the arc of history bends toward justice. You know what else? It also bends toward new creation and reconciliation. Don't be on the wrong side of history. And guess who controls history? The Lord who made it. The third thing is that, and this is, I, I suppose, overlaps with, with number one, but you can't have a two-point sermon. That'd be semi-heretical. Group chauvinism contradicts the love of God. The love of God. And to the extent that we subscribe to it, we are setting ourselves in opposition to the way of God. What is love? When you boil it down, fundamentally, at its most fundamental level, love is, 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 is just a willingness to welcome and engage and bless what is other. You, you start thinking and feeling and living and acting beyond yourself. It, you're, you're oriented toward other now. Another person. You're willing to welcome and engage and bless what is outside of yourself. Your interests, your safety, your comfort and familiarity. And maybe that's the reason in 1 John 4.18 that we're told that perfect love casts out fear rather than some other sentiment. It doesn't say perfect love casts out hatred. Isn't that interesting? Many of us would oppose love to hatred. But he says love is opposed to fear in some way. And why does it do that? Why does 1 John 4.18 pit love against fear? Maybe it's because of the different ways that love and fear react to what is other. Fear often recoils at otherness, doesn't it? That's different. It must be scary. Children, watch out. It distrusts the other. It often dehumanizes the other. Love draws near to what is other and different. Love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, believes all things. It's trusting in its disposition toward otherness. It recognizes the innate value of the other made in God's image. However different and other it may seem, because love isn't self-oriented. It's not about my group and my people and my comfort zone. It's about the other, what is different. Love is bold like that, right? Love is it's brave, courageous, risky. Was it risky when God incarnated as a peasant baby with a script that basically was going to end at Calvary? Is that risky? Is that dangerous? God is love. So how does God relate to us? Are we different from God? How different are you and me from God? Well, if you think about our sinfulness... 
our finitude over against God's holiness and transcendence, the difference between you and God or us and God is far greater than the difference between any two people group groups. I mean, however irreconcilably different they may imagine themselves to be, the delta between any of them and God is far greater, right? He is holy. We are sinners. Your sins have separated between you and me, Isaiah says. Your righteousnesses, all of them are like filthy garments, filthy rags. We're pretty different from God. And how does God respond to that difference? John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came into our midst to show us his glory. John 3.16 says that God so loved this world, which was just suffused with sin and brokenness, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God doesn't reject us because we're different. He doesn't keep us at a distance. In fact, he invites us to him. He pursues us. He wants to come near. He is the Emmanuel, the God with us. And you couldn't be more different from God in your sin. God welcomes us. And the question is, will we imitate the love of God? Love is not for wimps. I remember hear people hear, I'd hear people say, so-and-so, yeah, everybody's po he's a popular preacher, but there'd always be some curmudgeon in the church that would say, yeah, but all he talks about is love. Like, mic drop, what else need I say? I'm like, that, that's the tough stuff, if you understand it biblically. Love's the rub, man. To quote Switchfoot again for the four millionth time, love is the movement, love is the revolution. It is a movement. And it requires a lot of us. Will we imitate the love of God who welcomed us? This is Paul's argument in Romans 5. He's talking about something slightly different that we're going to probably get to in, in our next block of sermons about how do we as a church model reconciliation within the church so that the people that see us outside can be drawn to Christ through that. It's going to have to do with a lot of getting along when we differ over exegesis of certain passages and things like that. Keeping the main thing the main thing. But look what Paul says in Romans 15 as he concludes this huge section on um, being able to, to differ without dividing. He says, may the God of endurance, Romans 15, 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice, one unified voice, glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice verse 7, therefore welcome one another or your version may say, accept one another. How? What's the barometer, the gauge, the measure? As Christ has welcomed you. You were really different from God. You were that sheep, I was that sheep going astray. And God took our sin and put it on the back of the lamb. We were Jonah, running to Spain, running west when God said go east. We'd rather stay in our own little cubby and risk being away from God sometimes and being uncomfortable or scared 
or engaging somebody who's different. The gospel is that radical. It's not just about these floating spiritual ideas about what you talk about and do when you come into a building. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. There is no part of the universe that isn't His. He's the Lord of our relationships. He made all the people groups. He made all the diversity. It was His idea. It wasn't some accident. And He's calling all of it to Him. Will we imitate His love? Will you imitate it? Think about that when you flip on the news. When you get ready to post on Facebook. When you're chatting with friends at coffee shop. Let me suggest, though, as we close, that maybe we could also work on learning to see the many commonalities that we have with others. Rather than just our differences. You know, the worldly default appears to be magnifying the differences. Let's lean into the differences. Let's be defined and get our identity by what group we're in. Our ultimate identity. And let's magnify how our group is so much better than that group. And if everybody's doing that all the time, we're going to have alienation just shot through the planet. And that's what we have. We have disintegration. Not integration in Christ. But what if we were to look at our commonalities as much as we look at our differences? I mean, are we really that different from one another, really? I remember going to uh, an exhibit on race. At the, I think it was the North Carolina Museum of Life and Science. It's one of the ones, it's, it's the one with the big world, whichever, you know, the earth. I don't remember, I always get them mixed up. I think that's the one. Downtown Raleigh, uh, Shri and I went, and, and it was a multidisciplinary kind of exhibit. It had like hard science, you know, like biology stuff, genetics, and then like history and culture and all that. And it was kind of it's just a, what is race and what's what's going on with race? The whole thing was on race. Fascinating. And I remember one of the little exhibits asked you to picture, it was talking, talking about how genetics really that's not that's not what race is. That's not what anybody's studying that. They're not going, oh, it's so genetic. Color of skin, yes. Things like that. So what? Right? Really, it's a social cultural construct. And they, to illustrate this, they ask, but I mean, it's not real, it doesn't have biological aspects, but to say people who look this way with these three or four physical traits are this kind of people, that's what racism is. And to not look at each other on an individual basis. So the, the illustration was, picture, picture being in a big gymnasium, and somebody with a loudspeaker says, all right, I want all of you to group yourselves into, I don't remember how many, I'm just making this up, seven or eight sort of major races on the earth in this build, just self-assimilate self, uh, into, into whatever group. And so there were people, you know, like Northern Europeans and Southern Europeans and Sub-Saharan Africans and North Africans and Native Americans and whatever, you know, on and on and on. Um, you know, South Asian, East Asian, it just went all around the, around the globe. And so after, and, and it said, once all the people are in these groups, you know, there might be like 25 people in each group. Now look over to the other group, any of the other groups beyond your group. The difference genetically between any individual in one group, in your group, and another individual in your group is um, far less than, uh, I'm sorry, far greater, obviously, or is likely to be greater is the difference between you and somebody in a different group. Do you follow me? So in other words, 
I'm in this group, you're in that group, different race group. We may be more alike genetically, probably are, than the person standing beside me that I said is my group. That, that's from genetics. So how different are we? And there's so many examples of this. Politics, culture war in America. Despite some of the more inflamed rhetoric we hear from politicians and news pundits, most people in America are not at the two poles. They're not trying, it's not a conspiracy to take over the whole country from most people. I read an article by Jonathan Haidt who referred to a bunch of like actual studies on this. If you do a, a curve in America, the people at the most extreme ends who are saying the more extreme things and reposting the memes and some of these people are talking heads on our news networks are, are like, it was like 8% on either end. And then the vast majority of Americans are in the middle, kind of just trying to figure it all out and generally agree on most things and just wish people could figure out how to get along. Boy, you would not think that listening to our news, would you? Anybody get that feeling? How different are we really? Nations and cultures. Despite all the caricatures and the fear-mongering, the average citizen in every nation, whatever their leader's philosophy is, political philosophy, they're just looking for the same basic thing. They want health, they want shelter and food and meaningful work. They basically want what the Bible calls shalom. And they'd like to have a little joy thrown in for their families and their neighbors. That's it. Everybody. When God, how different are we? We're different from God in some ways, but in another way, we're very different. I mean, very similar to God. When he became human in the incarnation, he was reaching out to beings, ourselves, who, though warped by sin, were nevertheless created in his very own image. And he knew that. And he loved them. And while we are different from God in profound ways by virtue of our sin, we are also in our finitude, we are also connected to God. In the same way that our children are connected to us, or we're connected to our parents. It's an organic image-bearing creation type of connection. And this is perhaps why the good news, the gospel, carries with it a ministry of reconciliation. God is trying to restore that connection, that relationship, not only between himself and people, but also among people groups themselves. And to the extent that we think the Bible doesn't have anything to do with that, let me suggest, with all due respect, we're not reading it very well. And I'm not some theologian who's a brainiac about it. I'm just kind of reading some obvious stuff. And if this sermon is long, which it is, you should see how much I cut. Because there's a whole lot more verses that make these points. All right? So don't make it, don't make it hard on yourselves. And we'll keep coming if, if you want me to. I think we got it. That's the problem. Next week, we're going to try to talk about the solution a little bit. How do we transcend this group chauvinism? In what practical ways can we become people who don't lean in to this urge to accentuate difference and division and sectarian, you know, segmented thought, but lean into the new creation hope that all nations, tribes, tongues, and people can be together glorifying God in his presence forever. Amen? Thanks for your attention today. I appreciate your patience. We're going to stand and sing. If we can help you in any way, let us know by coming to the front. While together we stand and sing.